Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Kooks and Culture Podcast with your dude Shane Dog. This is episode number two, titled Enemies of the State, Soviet Punk Rock from 1975 until 1991. My guest that I have on today, her name is Liz Seeley. She is a graduate student here at Central Washington University. She is the student, curator, and creative mind behind the exhibit, Enemies of the State. And I had her in the studio to sit down and talk about her exhibit and talk a little bit about punk rock and Russian history. So guys, please enjoy. The All-American this is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the king. I am the Messiah. I rule the rock and roll. I'm, the I'm bringing us to a revolution against the government, against the police, against any form of society that is trying to put us down and restrict us in any way, shape, or manner. No stairway. Denied. You're tuned in to the Kooks and Culture Podcast with your host, Shane Dog Peterson. Death by Welcome stereo. everybody to the podcast. You're here with your boy Shane Dog here, and I am here with Liz Seeley. She is a graduate history student here at Central Washington University. She did her undergrad here as well. She majored in history and anthropology and minored in museum curating. And she is a student, curator, and the creative mind behind the exhibit Enemies of the State, Soviet Punk Rock from 1975 till 1991. And this exhibit focuses on the DIY mindset and how artists who are often silenced and criticized for their music in an oppressive government state. Uh, this exhibit is running till June 8th and is located in the Museum of Environment and, uh, excuse me, Museum of Culture and Environment inside Dean Hall on the campus of Central Washington University. It's been open for about two weeks now. I highly suggest you guys go check it out. It's located right behind, I believe it's the Peruvian Textiles one. You've got your nice corner in the back. And please go check it out. But um, Liz, I'm just going to kind of just start off with a few basic questions. Where are you originally from and how did you get uh, introduced to punk rock? Okay, so I'm originally from San Jose, California. Um, the way I got introduced to it is I was about four years old. I was driving with my parents in downtown San Jose and I saw this guy walking down the street, the stereotypical punk. He had the big mohawk, rainbow, studded jacket, and it just blew my four-year-old mind. I just thought it was so cool. Obviously, I didn't know what punk was or music. So I'm growing up in the 80s, and by the time I was in my early teens, I had an idea what punk was. It was associated with the music genre, and that's kind of what I knew. And then um, 1994 happened, and a bunch of bands came out that year that were like kind of like opened my world to what really punk is. So we're talking Rancid, Offspring, Bad Religions album, even though they've been around for a while, but it was the album Stranger Than Fiction that I got introduced to. And then obviously Green Day, especially coming from the Bay Area. So I had like a really good like foundation in Bay Area punk. Bay Area Punk is 100% where it's at for all of you that do not know. And um, you mentioned that, you know, you went to a lot of shows in Berkeley. And um, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, and maybe tell the audience about some of your experiences at 924 Gilman Street and the significance of that venue. So 924 Gilman, I always heard about it from some older friends. And then um, it's kind of like where you see bands like Green Day used to play back there, Bad Religion. 
I think Bad Religion. Bad Religion. Um, uh, Operation Ivy, I found yes, out. Yes, They're from Berkeley, and they were huge there, too, yeah. as well. They were li- Op Ivy was a little before my time. I mm-hmm. was, like, probably about 10 at that time. But Rancid, you know, coming out of Op Ivy, played there. Oppressed Logic. So um, as I got older, the bands that I usually went to always go see there was this little band, you might know of it, from being from the area, Groovy Ghoulies. Groovy Ghoulies, no. They're no longer together. Um, They had like more of a poppy punk sound going. A lot of the stuff was rooted in like um, horror kind of imagery. I I, I get down on that a lot. I'm a really big like Misfits guy. I love all that really dark imagery. I don't know if it was, he's, I don't know if I would go that dark with them. Not that dark. But they were a lot of fun. And that was usually the band that I went all around like the Bay Area or Sacramento to see. Sacramento, the hometown. Shout out to 916. So um, one interesting fact about 924 Gilman Street that not many people know is it is privately owned or actually technically publicly owned by the punk rockers in the Berkeley community. Mm-hmm. And I had to, you know, flex my punk my punk rockness. I brought my membership card with me from 924. Do you have any of these still? I, up until my last move, I had three of them. But I don't think I have any more. I've moved so many times since I went there. Like, I think I made about 10 moves. So every time I move, everything gets smaller and smaller what I own. Yeah, I feel that. Well, may, you know, maybe if you get back there one day, I mean, it's only $2. That's 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 <laughs> the membership fee. That's the, that's the fine. You got to get into all the clubs. But um, I wanted – you mentioned Green Day in Gilman, and um, <laughs> I have to talk about – my favorite NorCal punk band, and I, I have to, I, I always ask everybody if they know about them because they just have such a huge influence on me. And they were also a super huge influence on Green Day and AFI. I want to know if you've ever heard of the Circus Tents from Grass Valley, California. No, I have not. The Circus Tents were a skate punk band out of Grass Valley, California, which is about 15 or 20 minutes up the road where I grew up in this complete little hill town. Like, it's like really country, really bumpkin. But mm. these guys formed in a high school, uh, Nevada Union High School, one of the local high schools like in my district. And they put on this album and they performed at Gilman. And their song on this album, Open Your Eyes, was covered by AFI on their first album as an homage to Matt Wedgley, the lead singer who mm-hmm. started this. And also, um, I keep I keep an example of it inside the sleeve as well, original sleeve from 93 too. But one thing that made the Circus Tent super famous is this sticker right here. And this is their sticker that they handed out at all their Gilman shows. And this sticker was on Billy Joe Armstrong's guitar for the American Idiot Tour. Oh. Super fun fact. I don't know. I like it. Pretty play. cool. Yeah. No. I, 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 I just, NorCal punk, nobody knows about it. And it's like this stuff is rooted in just so much more than punk culture, skate culture, everything that really was birthed out of like Northern California in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And some of the bands from Stockton, where I'm from, that I used to go see that maybe you might know, um, The Lobstrosities, Scattered Fall. I I have heard of Lobstrosity, haven't heard of Scattered Fall. I have been to uh, one uh, backyard show in Stockton, like a backyard hardcore (laughs) show, and that was one of the funnest funnest times I've ever had. They just, Mm -hmm. that was just absolute chaos, but it was like... For Stockton, it's almost like an hour drive where my house is. So I, I only made the trip down once to see my buddy's band perform. But Stockton is an interesting place. Some of those communities like Stockton and like South Sacramento and even parts of San Francisco, like uh, uh, the Tenderloin District where they have some of the venues there, you usually find that like the scenes there are just like it's so much more authentic and it's so cool and it's like nothing just diluted from what like the original 
scene really wanted, and it's just great that there's still that manifestation in some of these places. I just, I, I, I don't know about what, what you think about it, but it's, what, what do you think is really like the driving force behind that? What do you think makes that scene still alive today? Well, I can't speak for the past 10 or so years down there because I moved up here f a while ago to Washington. Sometimes I wonder if it's isolation. Like if you're talking about Stockton, like, yes, we are in a po area that we're still technically close to the Bay Area. You're still technically close to Sacramento. It's like a 40-minute drive. Mm -hmm. But it's something that I see in my research in Russian punk rock or Soviet punk rock. It's the location and the people in it and how they influence each other and how they may be influenced by outside scenes or not influenced by outside scenes. And through my research, one of the things that was always interesting to me is the Siberian punk scene and how it developed so differently than what you think punk is. Yeah, you said, you mentioned in your, uh, your talk that it developed a lot later than kind of like sort of the mainstream Soviet punk that was kind of developing during that time. It had a little bit more of a later delay, but it still really, it held a lot of the same values, but what would you say some of the more distinct differences was? Well, if we're going to just go based off of aesthetic mm -hmm. for starters, um, so for Siberian punks didn't necessarily have what you think a punk rocker is going to look like. Like I saw when I was four years old, that mm -hmm. punk with the mohawk and the jacket, because if they outwardly showed that appearance, they were subject to being harassed by the KGB. So they found other ways to express their punk attitude. For them, it came out more through attitude and through the music itself than outwardly appearance. Outwardly appearance, okay. Well, this actually really segues um, kind of into my next question. Where, when did you come up with the idea of actually really focusing on this research and really putting this research into this project that you made? Like, what, what really sparked the idea? Well, let's see. I originally wanted to be, when I came here to Central, a historical archaeologist focusing on um, British Isles, like Roman Britain era Vikings in that area. Mm -hmm. But then I met, um, through the history department, Dr. Roxanne Easley, who's a Russian historian, and she also teaches like medieval history classes. And I just really love her as a professor. She's a wonderful person, and she really engages students. So I started taking a Russian history class with her, and it looked at um, literature in Russia and how it developed under s censorship. So that kind of already piqued my interest. And then over on the anthropology side, I was still doing archaeology, and I was getting ready to go do a trip to Siberia for archaeology there. And that was a little before um, or little after Pussy Riot was arrested in 2012 for their guerrilla performance in a cathedral. Yeah, I actually went and YouTube that whole performance after your speech. It's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's so sick. It's just uh, it's just the, the videos, too, of them just getting beat to death near, nearly by the police. Yeah. It's absolutely wild, but it's it just really shows you just, like, the the whole Russian-Soviet state, especially during that time, and even still now, I, I, yeah. I find Russian history very fascinating because there's it's so rich. There's so much, you know, 
conflict and controversy and a lot of like really large economic and technological mm -hmm. growth. But it's really weird because it's it's like like you said, a lot of the history is developed through censorship and through you know different lenses and stuff. And it makes it kind of it's it's very fascinating to really understand Russian history because it's it's something that's not really brought forth a lot. Yes, and that was one of the things. So like I was doing all those things, and then. As I was supposed to be studying to become an archaeologist, I was getting more interested in cultural anthropology. And then another professor was like, well, punk's a legitimate study field in academics. And that was just like mind blowing. And then eventually they just merged together for me. And I was like, this is what I want to do, because me being me, I don't want to just repeat a topic that like a hundred other students have done to death. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You've got to be original with it. And I think you definitely hit it on the mark with originality for sure. So I wanted to ask, where and when do you think punk rock truly began in Russia? Okay, so... If I'm going to go back to my research, uh, starting, so you see in the late 70s through the underground market, black market, um, records are come, being smuggled in and slowly you start to see Sex Pistol records are getting in. And um, so there's this thing, the Calm Samal, which is the youth organization part of the Communist Party, was like starting to put out articles in their newspaper talking against it, like, avoid this, basically, we don't want to corrupt our youth it's with the it. the devil's music. Yeah. And so um, there is a group in Leningrad of kids in the underground scene, already underground rock musicians. You got to think of it, remember, at this period, most rock is heavily censored. So it wasn't necessarily just punk was only censored, it was a lot of Western music was being censored. And there was one guy in particular, Andre Panov. I, I was going to ask you about him. <laughs> and he and some of his friends, they were part of this underground scene, and he ended up forming the Automatic Satisfiers, which is looked to be Russia's first punk band, like full-on punk band. There are the other bands that kind of messed around with influences, but this is like one of those defining bands or moments for Russian punk. Okay, so um, you uh, you threw a little bit of vocabulary at us. Um, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to pronounce this correctly. Uh, I've got two of these here. I would like a translation, and I would like to know a little bit of the significance behind it. Uh, the Samzidant and the Tamzidant. Did I pronounce that correct? Close. Close. Okay. Now I'm all like, how do I say it? <laughs> <laughs> Samizdat. So, which means basically self-publishing. So, if we're looking back into early Soviet history, and sometimes even before that. Um, one of the ways people got around censorship by the state was to self-publish their own works, or sometimes it could have been a work that had been banned by a Russian author or an author outside of the Soviet Union. So what people would do is they'd get a hold of these. Sometimes they would handwrite it out. Sometimes they would type it out and bind it and pass it around. So Samizdat means it's produced in Russia for a Russian audience, for inside Russia. Mm -hmm. dot sorry about that, uh, okay. is, means it's produced in Russia, 
but it's taken out of Russia to be published, but it's all, once again, underground self-publishing. Okay, and um, I know that there was a, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of censorship and a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, they weren't letting people make any records. Only a few people in Russia were allowed to actually produce records, correct? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know I'm not going to get this name right, but I wanted to ask you about um, the Bone Records, the 1940 Bone Records, and how those came about. Okay, so just to back it up a little, there was only, to, to help lead into yeah, this, yeah. there's only one state-controlled record company, Melodia, and in order to be a musician and get published or your music out there, you have to be, they, in academic terms, it's an, an official musician, meaning you conform to the standards set forth by the state of what you can sing about, how you can look, how you can play your music. If you abide by those and they accept you, then you can work as a full-time musician, they will help. They helped get um, gigs. They even got paid for it. Not a lot, but they made an, a living. Unofficial musicians technically had to abide by all of those same rules, but they also had to have a day job. Otherwise, you could be arrested for um, avoiding work, and they could arrest you under a law called the anti-parasite law. Okay. So That's going wild. so to help go into the bone records, so the bone records are um, underground records that are made from used X-rays. So they used a lathe-like technology from um, they borrowed the technology from gramophones, and then they kind of modified it, used homemade lathes to record their records on used x-rays and it got so popular that they started at different hospitals having to put guards out to guard the trash to stop people from from stealing all these used x-rays and you have one of the uh one of those bone records in your exhibit yes. it is absolutely awesome i you you found that on eBay, right? You mentioned. Oh yeah. I I you really sparked my curiosity, and if I get an extra couple coins in my pocket and I find one, I might have to do it. Those things are awesome. Yeah. Absolutely, they're gorgeous. It's it's so cool because you can see the X rays still on the vinyl. Like it's mm -hmm. almost like it's something that people do on purpose nowadays, but they just had to do it just to get it out, just so, so people could hear it. Um, so I also wanted to ask about um, the story behind the album Red Wave and how that came to the States and caused a little bit of controversy. Okay, so Red Wave was a record of four Leningrad bands. And just so if anybody's not familiar with the term Leningrad, that would be St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. So there was an American woman named Joanna Stingray. She was in Leningrad, and she befriended a lot of the musicians in the underground scene. And she got um, some of them to record their music, and she smuggled it out of the U.S., I'm of the USSR, oh. to the U.S., to a record company in Los Angeles. It was recorded and released as a Red Wave, Red Wave record. Mm -hmm. And then um, when she was trying to get back into the USSR, because she was actually going to marry one of the musicians from the band um, Kino, who was on that record, she was stopped 
And what she had to sign all these paperwork saying it was all her idea, taking the heat for it. Uh, so all the pressure went to her and not the guys and all these bands. And there's only a handful of them left. And again, I got it on eBay. I had to sit on eBay for about six months before one popped out. And the way I found out about it was this past summer, I was in uh, St. Petersburg for a month doing a study abroad, and I went to this small museum, it was a museum of underground music, and I met this guy that was friends with Andre Panov, and he showed me the record. So between his broken English, my broken Russian, and a lot of weird hand gestures, we were able to communicate about like the Red Rave album. He told me a little bit about Andre, and he referred to him as Russia's greatest punk. Russia's greatest punk. There's actually, um, I wanted to talk about another band too with you. Um, they were um, known as uh, Pizev, and then they- Pozev? that's how you pronounce it. Pozev, which, um, is um, has a little bit of a deeper meaning, but then they changed their name to Civil Defense, and they were uh, fronted by Edgar uh, Letov. Le Letov? I, I I can't do this. I'm terrible at this. It's okay. <laughs> I am terrible with Russian still after four years. So Igor Letov, okay. he is part of the Siberian punk scene. So it's interesting when I do my research, I either see people referring to Andrei Panov, the one that did Automatic Satisfiers as the father of Russian punk, but then I'll also see other people referring to Igor Letov as the father of Russian punk or the father of Siberian punk. So he was with the band Grozdenskaya Abirano, which translates to civil defense. And in the early mid 80s, he was put into a mental institution for his music, and another band member was conscripted into the army when he had previously been let out of military service because he had health issues that wouldn't let him do it, but because of the band, because of the music, when this, they were still technically opposive, they... Um, conscripted him and they weren't the only people that this happened to there were other um russian punks that went either were conscripted some were kicked out of university it's 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 just amazing some of the sacrifices people have made for their <clears throat> art it's just it's just amazing that they were able to still do this so with the beef between um uh panov and uh uh old edgar here What's, who do you think truthfully is the godfather of Russian punk? Is it Andre? Oh, man. I lean towards Andre. And it for me, it's because I've spent the past couple of years researching these guys, reading um, interviews with them. So I just feel like more of a connection to Andre. And uh, he just, he was a prankster. He um, was known for drinking his own urine on stage, or sometimes even throwing poop at the audience. But it was, not that I condone that part, but it was just, um, I don't know, his personality, like, he just seems like he's one of those interesting people that you're like, you want to kind of be friends with him, but as, at the same time, you want to wear, like, protective gear. So you, you, don't want to, get... you want to stand in the back a little bit after <laughs> yeah. the shows? You still want to go, but you're going to be in the back. I, I understand that. I'm a Gigi Allen fan, so any of those <laughs> wild rockers, I'm just, like, I'm just obsessed with it. It's just, like, uh, the crazier you are, the better I like it. But, um, so, let's see here. 
Um, so, uh, Russian punk during the fall of the Soviet Union, would you say that um, it was very pro-Russian, or did it lean towards stuff that was a little bit more pro-American, a little bit more democracy as their state was falling? So, what's interesting, I just re-watched, um, there's a great documentary on the Siberian punk scene before I came here today called Traces in the Snow, and it's available on YouTube for anyone that wants to watch it with English subtitles, so don't worry if you can't read, if you don't understand Russian. Um, and they were talking, one of the guys in the Siberian scene, he was talking about that they were more, at least for his part, his group in the scene, like, because everyone, again, brings to the table their own personalities, their own understandings, but they were more op existentially oppositional. So he was saying for them, at first they were oppositional to a totalitarian, help me out here. Totalitarian. Totalitarian regime. And then they became more oppositional towards the, a democracy. Okay. Because that was a question that kind of skewed in my head is because I feel like a lot of like what some punk that you've seen in America is a little bit more pro-socialism. And then I could just imagine if you're in a socialist state and you're being oppressed by it, wouldn't you make your punk music pro-democracy in a way? It's, a, it's kind of like a weird thing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a teeter-totter in a way. Um, so uh, were there any other Russian subcultures that derived from the punk scene during this time? Is there any other groups that really kind of like were like walking in the same footsteps or in the same path as the punks, but they kind of went off in their own way? Well, if we're going to go back to Leningrad, um, Andre, his really good friend, Eugenyev Ufit, who was part of the underground scene and the early punks, but he formed this, what becomes like a film genre now, called the Necrorealist. And so that's kind of playing off of a lot of those themes that you see in the Soviet underground where it's using like irony, um, parody showing a lot of like the uselessness of the state's effectiveness a lot of satire yeah satire is something that goes back in russian culture back to the medieval era that's like so deeply ingrained in russian culture and history that's 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 absolutely fascinating i wanted to also ask um, you mentioned that there was um, some Russians, uh, Russian punks that kind of, you know, jumped the pond and they were over in the New York scene. What was um, kind of the Russian punks view of the American punk scene and American punkers? Do you, do you have any idea of any of your research? Okay, so what we're, what we're talking about, sorry, yeah, is um, Edward Limanoff. So he wasn't necessarily a punk musician. He was a writer. And in the mid seventies, he was um, he was essentially kicked out of Russia, and he goes to New York in the mid seventies. So he's hanging out at CBGBs with um, Richard Hell, the Ramones, all of these, while trying to like get his works published. And he's writing, and he becomes very disaffected with. America, like the supposedly the land of milk and honey, and he's just like, no, this isn't what it is. So he goes back to Paris. He becomes part of this underground literary circle, and then after the fall, he comes back to Russia and he starts um, with some other guys this the National Bolshevik Party, which is about oppositional party to the state and they're really interesting themselves but he brings with him a lot of like 
punk ideology to this group and they do a lot of eventually like kind of like guerrilla tactic stunts where they show up and he uses a lot of the DIY that you can see in there in the punk subculture through the National Bolshevik Party, which ends up being banned later on. And he reforms to start another political group. Okay. But that just goes on to the idea, though, that for me, that's always been about punk is for me, punk is more than the music. It's it's the lifestyle. It's the way you live and the way you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about. I always tell people that you li- like if you're a true punk rocker and you truly like want to live it, you have to live with the PMA. You got to have the positive mental attitude. That's a part of it that not a lot of people attribute to it or really think of when they see a lot of punk punkers or anybody who really subscribes to you know this type of music that we love. So it's I I love I love all of it. It's just mm. also cool, and that's why I was so fascinated to learn more about Russian punk because you know you learn a lot about you know Great Britain with the Sex Pistols and the clash and all these other great groups and there's even i've even kind of dove into a little bit of punk rock in south african history during the apartheid which is pretty interesting national talk i who i haven't gotten into that yet i've been trying to look up more research articles but i if national talks a south american punk group i'm gonna yeah. have to i will look them up yeah. i'm always taking suggestions yeah what's really cool as like a historian and cultural anthropologist i've been noticing there's a lot of research that's looking at punk but not necessarily in the u.s or the uk anymore it's looking at places like peru russia south africa it's i it's i've i've found out i work with i work at uh, the ski resort in snoqualmie and we have a lot of workers from peru argentina chile and i've become friends with a lot of them and it's surprising how many of them like punk music and like mm. know about like punk bands like uh, one of my friends mafe she loved green day so like, <laughs> we would always be listening to green day at the chair every once in a while but this is another question that i thought of um that kind of sparks my curiosity so what changes in Russia do you think were attributed to the ideals of punk rock and the DIY mindset? When the Soviets fell, what kind of arose from that that really exemplified what the punks tried to start? Oh, let me take a moment to think about that. That's a really good one. Um, okay, so some of the bands that I have been looking at, so most of my research start, I really focused on the early part. So I'm just now starting to look into the 90s mm-hmm. and what has happened since then. And in particular, there's one band that um, I've been looking into a little more. It's called Tarkani. Mm-hmm. And they formed six months af- six months prior to the, fo- the collapse of the Soviet Union. And watching their... Um, learning more about them, you've seen like... They're trying to get more of a positive message out there. They were one of the bands that um, was trying to support Pussy Riot. And I'm doing some research into them. The singer was talking about in the 90s, you see a lot of like the rise of skinheads in Russia and how they were trying to fight back or push back against that. Yeah, the skinhead the skinhead movement's kind of a really weird thing. Uh, my grandfather uh, did thirty five years in the military, and they were state. My family was stationed in London and a few different places across the world. And when I was, I was actually telling him that I started reading because I'm trying to read to get smarter. But I started off my first book with "Get in the Van" by Henry Rollins, and mm-hmm. it's the second edition, and it has all these pictures of them with skinheads. And he was like, "Well, from what my understanding was, is that like." 
the skinheads in London during that time when he was there, he was like, all oh, those kids were the kids you shouldn't mess with. Like those were the kids that, you know, were like supremacy affiliated. They were, you know, they were using drugs. They were violent. But when you go across the pond and you look at like the Washington DC scene with like guys like minor threat and black flag, like when they, sh- like when they were skinheads, like it meant the opposite. They lived the most cleanest, purest mm-hmm. lifestyle that they possibly could live. It's just, it's really the whole entire skinhead thing. It's very weird because a lot of people still like get worried about it and get taken back by it and think that it's more of a like a like a white prejudice or white supremacy sign. Like that's what skinhead is mostly affiliated with. But most of the like sometimes throughout punk history, like that stood as being a real punker, being pure, not always having to have the wild hair, but just like being clean cut and mean and ready to rock. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, in Russia during this time period in the 90s, it is fueled more behind the non-positive sides of skinheads. Because like when I try to talk to people about the development of skinhead culture going back to England and how it's changed over the time, how you can be a skinhead and not be also a white supremacist, but then there still is that faction that are. So mm-hmm. it's trying to figure out like which way it's going and where your affiliation lines up. Because yeah. that's one of the things like I've had a couple of people bring up about my exhibit is they're saying, oh, this you put your framing punk in such a positive light. Because they're referencing like the neo-Nazi skinheads, and I was just trying to say, get across that, yes, punk is a spectrum, people in it. Not everyone agrees. If you've been in the punk community for a while, you know that. Mm -hmm. But it can be a force of positive change, but it also can fall under the opposite side. Yeah, unfortunately, there has been people who have taken that art and really use it for the worst. And even ones that didn't even initially intended it, like groups like Judge, like they received a lot of criticism for some of their lyrics and some of the stuff that they talked about mm-hmm. in their songs. Even though they never meant it to be intentional, it's it just genuflected that way and it really caused them a lot of problems as a group and actually forced them to break up. Yeah, and also um, if your language barrier too can be a problem when you're importing English language punk, into a non-English speaking country and some of the irony and gets lost in translation. I did a um, review for a documentary film called East Punk Memories and it's talking about the Hungarian punk scene and that was one of the things some of the people brought up about it. It's like they were interpreting sometimes like the Ramones as a fascist ban and dead Kennedys and some of these other ones that are not associated whatsoever with fascism. They're they're, they're the farthest thing from it. Yeah, but because of not knowing the language, they're seeing the swastikas on certain bands, not getting that. They're not that way. This is their way of poking at this. And it was interpretive. It was, it was interpretive and it caught everybody's attention. It was successful with what they wanted to do with it. It made it either caught your eye or made you really mad. And yeah. that's what they wanted you to see or feel. That That's the best part about it. They just poked at society. I, it's like I love the uh, like the Nazi uh, Nazi punks off album, like mm-hmm. the 45, how it's just got the fat swastika on it. Like if you like if you were a, uh, if you're a tipper gore type of character and you <laughs> see something like that, you're just going to lose your mind. 
that that's part of the reason I love about punk rock is that it pokes at you know your First Amendment, your right to free speech. Talk about how mm -hmm. you think and you feel, and it's just and it really shows in a lot of what punk rock has done in Russia and what you have really talked about and opened my eyes to because it's pretty interesting. I, having it really tied in with what was going on then has been really cool to learn about. So I kind of wanted to close thing up. Um, the exhibit's still going to be run until June 8th. It's still located in the Museum of Culture and Environment inside Dean Hall on the campus of Central Washington University. Please, guys, go check it out. And Liz, do you have anything else you'd like to say before we go? I just want to thank you for having me here. Um, this has been so much fun. Actually, I've been researching everything for so long, and now I'm at the point where I, I get to share it with people and to see like such positive feedback and people wanting to learn more. It makes me feel like, okay, I did something right. Well, I, I, I thank you again for taking your time to come and talk to me about this and have me try to create some good content out of it. So I appreciate it a lot. And guys, please tune into the next episode of Kooks and Culture. We will keep you posted up on 881 The Berg, your music central. And guys, always use the power of the PMA. And remember, always go for all. Thank you. Всем фотоальбом